Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 24. And I'll read verses 44 through the end of the chapter. We're going to focus just on one verse, but we can see its context here. We'll focus on verse 49 about the promise of the Father. Starting in verse 44 of Luke 24. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Well, let's look to God and ask for his help and ask for that same spirit that he promised and did send upon his church in the, on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your word is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, but we also believe that we need the help of your Holy Spirit And we believe that you did pour out the Holy Spirit upon your church on the day of Pentecost and that you have never withdrawn your spirit from your church. And yet we always need fresh measures of the Holy Spirit. So come and help us. Grant us your Holy Spirit today that I might preach your word faithfully and that we all who can hear it might profit from it for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, you may recall the setting here that especially in verses 36 through 45, we have uh, the account of something that happened on the night that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose in the morning, of course, but on the night of that day, the, the Lord's Day, the first Lord's Day, first day of the week in which Jesus rose, he came to his apostles in Jerusalem. He appeared to them. And this is part of that visit, verses 36 to 45. In verses 46 through 49, we have words that were spoken probably sometime later, as I mentioned in an earlier sermon on this chapter. If Jesus spoke these words only once, 
We know that he repeated a lot of the things that he said, especially to the disciples who needed to hear the things more than once. But if he did only speak this word, these words here in verses 46 to 49 once, then probably it was just before he ascended into heaven. Um, in verses 50 to 53, that was the occasion of his ascending into heaven. And Luke, therefore, has compressed 39 days worth of Jesus' activity into just verses 46 to 51. It compares with Acts chapter 1, and let's turn over there and read those so we have some context here. Because Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 comes into play in the things I'm going to be saying today about the sending of the Holy Spirit. Luke, of course, wrote not only the gospel according to Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. He addresses Theophilus at the beginning of Luke. And now if you look at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, you notice what he says. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, and it's pretty evident that the former account is the gospel according to Luke, especially if you go back later and read the first four verses of Luke's gospel. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then also notice verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Acts. You have, um, in the account in between there, you have the um, uh, account of the choosing of one of the men to stand in the place of Judas. And then we come to chapter 2. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So just a couple of observations here before we go back to Luke 24. Uh, in the first couple of verses there, you see it says that Jesus had begun to do and teach things, and he continued to teach and do Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. So in those 39 intervening days, he still was teaching the apostles. That's why I say it's likely that this teaching in verses 46 through 49 came at a later date than that night in the upper room. It may have begun then. We don't know for sure. But he was continuing to teach, and he was continuing to present himself to the disciples. There were a number of different appearances. Here was the first. Uh, the last was the day when he ascended into heaven. But we're told in verse 3 that he presented himself alive after his suffering, verse 3, by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then, of course, in verse 1, we see that they did remain in Jerusalem as Jesus had told them until the day of Pentecost. One commentator on, that, on uh, Luke's gospel as you come to the end of Luke, it says, Jesus told them to wait, and in a sense, the book ends with suspense. Did they do what their Lord told them? Well, we have the answer, yes, they did. They waited until he sent that promise of the Father. Well, let me remind you of the outline that we've been following here in verses 44 through 49. We saw that Jesus reminds the disciples in verse 44. Second, he enlightens the disciples, verse 45. He opened their understanding, it says. And then in verses 46 through 49, Jesus commissions the disciples. He gives them a task to go out and preach the gospel. So we have the message, verses 46 and 47. The messengers, verse 48, which we saw last time. You are witnesses of these things. And now the power in verse 49. The power. How are they going to go out and do these things that Jesus told them to do? Boldly go out and witness to Jesus Christ, testify of his death and resurrection, and that he is the Savior of all. How are these weak 11 men going to go out and take that message to the world? Well, here's the answer, verse 49. It's the power. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So in this verse we have three things. First of all, what Jesus will do. Secondly, what they must do. And then third, where they must wait. 
So first of all, what Jesus will do, and that is that he will send something. He says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. He's going to leave, but as he had said in John 14, he would not leave them alone. He would send them another helper. He would not leave them as orphans. And that helper he calls here the promise of my Father. He doesn't specify the identity of this promise or of this power with which they are going to be clothed. He doesn't name him. Now we know who it is, that it's a who and not just an it. And we know that for various reasons, but it's the Holy Spirit. And it's evidenced by, first of all, the fact that he says it is power from on high. He is some power sent down from heaven. Look over also over at Acts chapter 1 once again. In verse 4 of Acts 1, which we've already read, he says, You are to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. And then verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8, But, when you, sh- but you shall receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So in Luke 24 and verse 49, Jesus does not name the power, but he did in Acts chapter 1. And the, it is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the, whole, it is the Holy Spirit himself that is the promise of the Father. And that's the next thing to note. He calls it the promise of my Father. Well, where does that come from? Well, if you look back again in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, you see what Jesus is speaking about there. In Acts chapter 2, we have the account at the beginning of the chapter of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and so on. Well, that was the promise of the Father. But where had this been promised? Well, it had been promised hundreds of years before. And primarily, we can say in the book of Joel, the prophecy of Joel. If you look at Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, and running from verse 17 through verse 21, Peter, in his sermon that he preaches there, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had been outpoured, refers to this passage of Joel. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in verses 17 to 21, he quotes Joel verses 28 to 32. There's one minor addition there of a phrase that is not found in Joel. But that's what, that's what Peter does. Let's read verses 17 and 18. 
Peter said in verse 16, this is what was spoken, what you're seeing right now, this preaching of the Word of God and these men speaking in different tongues that are not their native tongues. This is what Joel spoke about. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my, on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. This is what Jesus was referring to when he said the promise of his Father. And this tells us once again very clearly that he was talking about the Holy Spirit of God. This is what Jesus said that he had previously mentioned in verse 4 of Acts 1. He said, you are to wait for the promise of the Father which you have heard from me. When did he previously mention this? Well, perhaps it was in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. We won't take the time to turn there, but it was just last week in the, our uh, Sunday school class that I went over that passage and said how Jesus had spoken about the fact that those who believed in him would receive the Holy Spirit. He would be like rivers of living water flowing out of the belly of everyone who believed in him. But, he said, uh, John wrote that that Spirit was not yet. He was not yet given, not in the way, the, the, the um, abundant way that he was given on the day of Pentecost. So this is the promise of the Father that Jesus had previously spoken to the disciples about. Possibly he was especially referring to that statement he made in John chapter 7. Possibly it was something he had been mentioning over the last 40 days. He had mentioned from the beginning of his public ministry the promise of the Holy Spirit as well, though, because as we read there in Acts, that um, he had said that, or, or John had mentioned that actually, that Jesus would be baptizing with the Holy Spirit when he came. So there's the promise of my Father. Um, but thir the third thing that tells us the identity of this Holy Spirit is the subsequent history of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit of God was poured out at the beginning of the book. But then, in, as Peter preached there on that day, he said in verse 33, speaking about Jesus Christ to this crowd of Jews there in Jerusalem, he said, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So there's Peter saying, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he ascended in heaven. When he ascended into heaven, he received this gift from the Father. He earned this gift, a gift that he would give to his church. And now there he is in heaven, pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as you look at all the rest of the book of Acts as well then, from chapter 3 through verse 28, you see the activity of this Holy Spirit mentioned over and over again, and we're to understand that the apostles could do what they did because of the power they were given 
the power of the Holy Spirit of God. How could ordinary men, some without any kind of formal academic training, just fishermen, tax collectors, how could they do what they did? And as it says in the book of the Acts, turn the world upside down the way they did. There's no human explanation. And there is no explanation for it other than it was the very power of the living God, God the Holy Spirit. Let's just notice a number of places where this is pointed out in the book of Acts. Let's start with Acts 4 and verse 8. Speaking of Peter, once again addressing, not this time, not all the people of um, Israel, but he says, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. How could Peter, with such boldness, speak to the rulers of Israel who were dead set against them and their message there in the first century on the days right after Jesus rising from the dead and ascending back to heaven. How could they do that? How could he have such boldness? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 31 of this same chapter, chapter 4. This was after uh, Peter had been arrested but then they were let go, we're told in verse 23, and they went back to their companions, and they were praying together. And we read in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. It was literally shaken in a visible or, or sensible way. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And then chapter 6 and verse 10. Throughout the book of Acts, we read about incredible things. Sometimes it's miracles. But it's just even the way that the apostles and the other uh, Christians could stand up in the face of opposition and that they could preach and so many people would believe and be converted. How do we understand that? Well, it's because of these very things that are stated here. And it's really one thing. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Chapter 6, verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. That he is Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church and the first martyr in Christ's church. And you come down to chapter 7, in verses 55 through 60, we see once again the account of Stephen's final words, his final sermon, if you will, when he was speaking to the people who were going to stone him. And it says in verse 55, after it's, well, let's read verse 54. When they heard these things that Stephen had been saying, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What explanation is there for the boldness of this man? What explanation is there for the love and compassion of this man asking for forgiveness for people who were stoning him to death unjustly? What explanation is there for the calmness of this man in such circumstances? It's only this one thing. Verse 55, he was full of the Holy Spirit of God. And then just a couple other texts. Chapter 9 and verse 31. Chapter 9 and verse 31. This was after Saul was sent to Tarsus, his hometown, and not, was not present in Jerusalem anymore for a while to stir up trouble there because of his conversion. Verse 31 says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Why was the church multiplying? Why was the church fearing God as much as they were and the way they were? Why was the church comforted in the midst of a hostile Jewish majority in Jerusalem? It was because of the Holy Spirit of God. And then chapter 13 and verse 2, as the um, missionary endeavors of the church to spread the gospel far and wide now shift into high gear. Notice what we're told about the role of the Holy Spirit. They were in Antioch, a number of the prophets and teachers of that church. And we're told in verse 2 that as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit is what the apostles needed to do everything that they were called to do. They needed the Holy Spirit for guidance and direction. They needed Him for comfort. They needed Him for boldness. Let's look back at John 15 for a moment. John 15, some of the words that Jesus had spoken the night before he died, before he was arrested and then put to death on the next day. Remember we read in verse 48 of Luke 24 that Jesus said to the apostles, you are witnesses. Well, look at John 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And then verse 27, And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The word bear witness there is the same uh, word. I should say it's a verb that comes from the same word. The noun, witnesses. You are witnesses. You will bear witness. But how would they bear witness? Well, verse 26 says, because the Holy Spirit of truth will testify of me. Same, same verb, will testify or bear witness. They were bearing witness, but they were not alone. 
Jesus said he would not leave them alone. He would send another helper. Who was it? The Holy Spirit. So all of their testifying, all of their witness bearing was joint witness bearing with the Holy Spirit of God whom Christ sent on Pentecost. And then look over at the next chapter, John 16, verses 8 to 10. Jesus speaks about the work of that Spirit that he sent. And he says in verse 8 of John 16, When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 7 says that that's the helper, the Spirit of truth. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Remember in verse 7, I should have started really at verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you to the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 13 calls him the Spirit of Truth. And verses 8 to 10 say that the one of the ways the Spirit of Truth is going to help is that when you preach that whether people believe or not is not going to be dependent on your power. It's not going to be dependent on your persuasive abilities, your speaking gifts, your gifts of oratory or rhetoric. It's not going to depend on that. It's going to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. People may not want to hear it, and you may not be gifted enough to convince them that Jesus Christ is really God, but the Spirit of God is powerful enough. He's not left simply to whatever He can make of your wisdom and your ability to explain the Scriptures or to speak to people's hearts. He can go right into the heart, and He can convict the conscience. And he can convict the conscience of anybody that he wants to. In a sense, it's a notice to you if you're not a Christian, and even if you don't want to be a Christian, that if God wants to make you a Christian, he can do it. Because he's not left just to the power of preachers like me. He has the power of his own Holy Spirit to make it happen. If God wants you, he will get you. But there's a warning here that goes beyond just saying, God may make a Christian of you someday. And the warning is this, you must not presume that you'll be saved someday because you've heard the gospel. And because you've thought maybe something like this, you know, my parents want me to be a Christian, but I'm just getting to the age when I can finally see the world and get out from underneath mom and dad's thumb and do what I want. And I know I should be a Christian, and I really do want to be a Christian because who really wants to go to hell anyway? No one does. So you say, I'll enjoy myself for a while, but I'll keep a rein on it. I'll keep it under control. I won't go hog wild. And then I'll repent someday. But not till I've at least had a little taste of the world. And maybe you fancy that uh, you'll be like the prodigal son. 
You'll come to your senses someday and you'll stop your foolishness. Don't presume that that's going to happen. Don't presume that that's going to happen. And don't delay repenting of your sins and turning to Jesus Christ. Do it today. Don't think of the prodigal son and say, I can do that when, I, when it's time. Think of the parable of the virgins. There were five of them who were ready for the coming of Jesus. And there were five who were not ready, but they thought it would all be okay. And so they went to sleep and they waited. And when the bridegroom came, they were not ready and they were locked out. They were locked out from the glorious day that we read about in, Re in Revelation 21 several minutes ago. Be warned. And take to heart the words of Stephen that we read earlier when he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's what he said to the Jews of his day. He says, as your fathers did, the unbelieving Jews, so do you. Don't you, listening to my voice today, be stiff-necked and hard of heart. But listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ and bend your neck and bow your knee to him today. And trust in him alone to save you. Well, there's the power, the first thing. What Jesus will do, he will send the promise. He will send the Holy Spirit of God. Secondly, let's notice what they must do. What they must do. And that's in verse 49 of Luke 24. And that is that they must sit and wait. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry. Tarry. That means wait. But I said sit and wait. And the reason I said that is this, because the word is literally the word sit. That's the literal translation of the word, and it's the normal translation. So Jesus said, but you just sit. In other words, don't do stuff, but sit there. Sit there and wait in Jerusalem. On one hand, that may have been the thing they preferred Jesus to tell them at that point in time. They were in a hostile city, as I said. And uh, they might have said, you know, we have a nice comfortable upper room here. Why do anything else but just sit for now? They, they, may, they may have really wanted that counsel from Jesus. On the other hand, it was really incongruous that Jesus, after he told them all the things he told them, not only for the last 40 days or on that day that he went up to heaven, but it was incongruous in light of all the training that he had done of them in the years leading up to this. They had great news to share. And now... Every one of them was convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And they were convinced of his lordship. And as I said, they had been trained to go out and preach and teach. And even empowered them to do miracles. It was incongruous that they had this great news and then they should just sit. With all these unbelieving Jews who, who were ripe to hear the gospel. Sitting out there. And it was incongruous in a sense because, at least for some of them, it would have been against their grain, like Peter's anyway, right? I'm just going to sit here now and not go out and preach about my Lord? But Jesus said, that's what you must do. You must tarry. 
You must wait. You must sit and not go. But then we're also told where they must wait. He says, you must tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. They must wait in the city of Jerusalem. Let me just say a few things about the fact that he told them that they were to wait there in the city. <clears throat> As it says, some... Uh, some uh, what am I, the words I'm looking for? Manuscripts. Some manuscripts don't have the words of Jerusalem there. They just say in the city. But it's kind of like uh, the way we talk about the city. We don't have to specify New York when we say the city in this part of the country. And so Jesus said in the city, the city where they were. They were to wait there. He was just outside the city when he ascended. So that's what he was telling them. But what, what about this city, and why does Jesus specify wait there? Well, for one reason, there's a sense in which this city of Jerusalem is the focus of Luke's gospel. None of the other accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, of Jesus' life begins with the setting of Jerusalem. But Luke's gospel does. You remember that? Back in chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, we're told about this man, Zechariah. And Zacharias was a priest, and he happened to be in the city of Jerusalem at the temple, fulfilling his time of service there. So it starts out in Jerusalem. And there are other scenes in Jerusalem that we don't find in other Gospels. In chapter 2, uh, Jesus is taken to the temple for his purification. And then in, uh, later on in chapter 2, we're told about the trips that Jesus' family made to Jerusalem during the years of his youth and how they would go to the temple. And even that one time when he was 12 years old, how Jesus stayed in the city of Jerusalem. He was found in the temple. And Jew, uh, the last half of Luke's gospel is not quite like John's, which it's all centered around Jerusalem, beginning at chapter 13 of John. The rest of John's gospel is just in the city of Jerusalem during the, what we call the Passion of Jesus. But the whole last half and more of Jesus' gospel is focused on Jerusalem in the sense that we're told at chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus began a journey. And where would that journey end? It would end in the city where he had as a prophet to die, as he said in chapter 13. But in chapter 9, we're told that he set his face like flint for Jerusalem. And so from that moment in Luke's gospel, it was all about the trip to Jerusalem. And of course, the rest of it was about what happened in Jerusalem once Jesus got there. Luke's gospel is focused on this city. That's one thing that we say about the city of Jerusalem where they were to wait. Secondly, Jerusalem was Jesus' own place. Look right on the next page of your Bible or maybe the same page at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 11. John tells us that Jesus, when he came into this world... When the Word of God became flesh, John 1.14, when He came into this world, He came to His own. That is, His own things. And then it says, and His own, and there the, the uh, gender of the Word tells us it's His own people. They did not receive Him. So where were His own things and His own people? Well, they were in Jerusalem. His temple was in Jerusalem. 
His covenant people were in Jerusalem. His worship was in Jerusalem. His people were in Jerusalem. There was his own things. It was his city. It was God's city, Zion. In Jesus' death and resurrection, there's a sense in which we could say he was restaking his claim to his city and his people. So they're to wait there in God's city, Jesus' own city, until they're empowered from on high. And then it's the place from which it was prophesied that the gospel would go out. Remember back in verses 46 and verse 47, Jesus said, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. That was written about in the Old Testament. And that repentance and remissions, remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So they were to wait there in Jerusalem. That was to be their starting place. Not Galilee. Not Cana, where they had been living and, and making a living. But Jerusalem was the place. Wait there. Don't go back to your homes and your callings of fishermen and whatever else it might have been until you're endued from, with power from on high. But sit in Jerusalem until then. That's the place from which the gospel would go out. Let's just read one passage about that. The book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah. Um, after Jonah, Micah 4, verses 1 and 2 parallel to Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. Micah 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We can say the law would go forth, and the gospel from Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem. So that's where they must wait. The place prophesied. So, we see the power, what Jesus will do. He will send the Holy Spirit. We see what they must do. They must sit and wait. We see where they must wait, the city of Jerusalem. And let's now close with some practical observations and applications from this text. And the first one is this. It's very simple. Remember how I said in verse 48 that uh, the apostles are witnesses? That was just last week. You are witnesses. But I said he wasn't just talking to the apostles. He was talking through them to us. All the church of Christ are his witnesses. So here's a very practical observation for us. We have the same spirit. He has been poured out. And as I said earlier, he has not been recalled to heaven. He has not been revoked. The promise of God has not been revoked. 
the promise that the Holy Spirit would come from the Old Testament hundreds of years earlier, and that was fulfilled in the days of the apostles on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out in such an, un- an unusual way, in a big way, and who enabled the apostles to do all the things they did in the spreading of the gospel. So the gospel has now really gone all throughout the earth to all the four corners of the earth. That Holy Spirit has not been called back by God to heaven. He's still here with His church. To use the uh, illustration that I used in the Sunday school class, actually that's what was last week, uh, in the Sunday school class last week, the restricting insert that you have in some shower heads has been removed so that the Spirit has been poured out and it is, that, that insert is not to be reinserted. The Spirit of God has been poured out and He flows like a river of living waters from the belly of every true believer now. He still inhabits His church. The church is the temple of the Spirit of God, as we're told in the New Testament. And like our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, being very God of very God, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we need to believe that, brethren. And we need to remember that, that we have the same Spirit. Because we're, we get tempted to think, but we're so weak. And we can't do all that we're called to do. And this world is so um, numerous. Unbelievers are compared to believers, especially when we look at many other countries. And they're so antagonistic, and they're so hostile. And even in our country, they're growing more hostile. I mean, some of you would say, we can't even meet as churches. And some of you would say, but there's good reasons for that. And we don't know how mixed the motives of people are. But when we just focus on those things, we can be afraid. And we can be pessimistic. But we should not be, brethren. That's my point. Yes, there are things that are true of the apostles. They were the original witnesses that do not extend to us supernatural things like their authoring of the New Testament Scriptures, things like their speaking in tongues and performing miracles. The Spirit of God is not doing those things the way He was then, now. However, we're told in Matthew 28, verse 20, We have the same promise that the apostles had when Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us now through His Holy Spirit. And the remaining work that Christ gave them and that they undertook and that they began but did not complete, bringing the gospel to all the nations, is our work. And He has given us the same power to do the work. We may not be able to do all the things they did, but we are called to continue the work of gospel preaching and church planting that they began. And we're called to continue it for all of the days that God gives us. All of the days that God gives us strength. And we have the same Holy Spirit of God today that they had. We must not forget that. And that should lead to and color our thinking about the next 
several things I'm going to say as well. That's the first practical observation and application. The second one is this. We therefore have all the power we need to do all that God has called us to do. And Jesus' language there in verse 49 He said, stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that word endued is an old word. It's not one that we really use very often unless we're reading a text like this. Then we use it. It literally is that they would be clothed. King James Version uses this old word, endued. Or it could mean, this word endued could mean invested or supplied. So it's an excellent word. You're clothed with the Holy Spirit from on high, or you are supplied with or invested with power from on high. We have this same word in Colossians 3.12. And Pastor Hoffmeyer has been reminding us of the garment that we are to clothe ourselves with that includes things like kindness and long-suffering. We put those things on. So why? So that our lives are characterized by those things. Or as Paul said in Romans 13, verse 14, we are to clothe ourselves with Christ so that when, we, when people see us, they should see Christ. And we should live like Christ and act like Christ. Christ-likeness should characterize us if we're clothed with Christ. Well, here then, we are to be clothed as the apostles were with power, the power of the Holy Spirit, so that that power characterizes us in our Christian living and in our bearing witness for Christ. In other words, we should realize that we are not to look to our native power, whatever we have as human beings, as individuals, I don't rely on my native power. I don't rely on my native gifts. We don't rely on the numbers that we have in our church or in the Christian church throughout the world. We don't rely on those things. Those things, brethren, frankly, don't even matter. Why? Because we've been clothed with power from on high, from God Himself, from heaven. The power that can enable us to be effective witnesses is not our power. It is God's power. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 17 and 18. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Don't trust in not only human power or animal power. Don't trust in any carnal power of any sort. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy. Those who realize that of themselves, all they can do is get down on their faces and put their faces in the dust and rely on God and His power. That's the idea here. Wait until you are endued with power from on high. It's something we see illustrated in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, in Gideon. He had thousands of Israelites. He thought maybe he at least stood a a chance against the Midianites. But then God whittled his army down to 300 And this weak and fearful man, Gideon, couldn't believe it. And he he needed, he constantly needed little encouragements. Like, would you make the fleece wet? Oh, great. Would you make the fleece dry? 
Uh, would you give me some token to let me know that you really mean what you say that I should go with these 300? So he gives them that dream that uh, they overhear in the Midianite tent. But with just Gideon and those 300, they were able to put to, to flight the thousands of Midian. That's a picture of it. That's how we need to think when we think of something like this text here of being endued with power from on high. We should think of the Apostle Paul at the end of the book of Acts after we read all the things, all the things that we read in the book of Acts about Paul the Apostle and the others that labored with him and what they did in the book of Acts, endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, after we read all of those things, what do we find at the end of the book of Acts? There's this mighty Apostle Paul, and he's a prisoner in Rome. The last two verses of the book of Acts, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. His own rented house there is, is a truth. It's true. I think in a way it's a euphemism because he was under arrest. As he says in Philippians, he was in chains. But he was preaching, wasn't he? And as it says there, he was doing it with all confidence, no one forbidding him, not even his captors. The gospel was still going forth. Why was that happening? Well, it was because Paul was clothed with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power. So that we read in Philippians 1, verses 12 and 13, as Paul writes about that time, sitting there under arrest, he says, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard in Rome and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's because of the Spirit of God. As God said through Zechariah in Zechariah 4, verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's why one of my prayers almost every single Lord's Day, this is my text that is part of my prayer on the Lord's Day morning, that God would make this my experience, which was the experience of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, where he said, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Paul had it. He was a gifted man. But he, that was not what he would rely on. And he knew that if that's all he had was his own wisdom, his preaching would be a vain effort. But he said, I want my preaching to be in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We have that same spirit here in the 21st century church. That means we have all the power we need to do all that God has called us to do. Third, we need to wait upon God as the apostles did. We need to wait upon Him and seek His face. 
That means we need to be patient like the apostles were. They probably wanted to go out and preach. They wanted to do what Jesus had called them to do. I mean, there were probably at least some that had the attitude of Saul in them. Well, we're told to wait here till, this, till, till Samuel gets here and for the sacrifice, but come on, we've got to go out and fight. We've got to go out and do something. No, we need to seek God's face. We're told in Acts 1, in verse 14, which we read, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were still all, all with, excuse me, they were with one accord in one place. They were all there doing what Jesus said. Then the Spirit of God came. You have a similar picture in Acts 13, verses 1 and following. There they were, waiting on the Lord, fasting, seeking direction. What should we do? Then the Spirit of God directed them. Brethren, we need to imitate them in that way and wait upon God. We need to pray. We especially need to pray that prayer of Luke 11 and verse 13 when we are told that... The Father will certainly give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. We need to regularly pray for the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful to God that that's a common prayer in our prayer meetings, in our, our services. Pastor Smith prayed for the Holy Spirit this morning, that I would be given the Holy Spirit to preach. We need to be like that, brethren. We need to be like Moses, who said in Exodus 33, to the Lord in his prayer, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. That should be our attitude with every gospel endeavor. Every gospel endeavor. May God give us that attitude and that conviction. And then I need to, to go on. So we need to wait upon God as the apostles did. Sometimes we need to wait and do nothing till we're certain what God wants us to do. But we always need to wait in terms of prayer for the Holy Spirit of God. Fourth, to help those who might be tempted to just sit and wait forever, we need to boldly go forward in bearing witness for Christ. As opposed to saying, well, well, we need to think it through some more and we need to pray some more. When we know what God wants us to do in a given situation. When it's just an excuse that we're using here for laziness or for fear or for a lack of compassion for the lost around us or a lack of zeal for the gospel. No, brethren, we should believe that even if we don't have every single thing planned out, if God puts us in a witnessing opportunity and I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had planned for this. Come on, you're a Christian. You know the gospel. You know what it takes to be saved. Open your mouth. Go back to Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. I, I won't take the time to turn there. Where Jesus says, if you come before kings and authorities, and it's a tense moment, and there's people of, of uh, stature that are there, people of standing, and you just don't know what to say, and you said, I wish I would have sermon notes right now. He said, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that hour. Brethren, we have the same Spirit. Believe. We may not have what it takes 
to do everything we want to do in terms of all of our gospel endeavors in the world and even in our own places. But we do have what it takes to do all that God has called us to do. We have been endued with power from on high. And then fifthly and finally, it's just this. We need to believe all these things. We need to believe. Believe that God's Word gives us our marching orders. Go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. We need to believe that we simply need to obey these orders and do it in God's way, and God will bless. We need to believe that, brethren. And we should believe that we have been clothed with power from on high. You look at yourself, I know, you're not impressive. You're weak, you're just like me. But we have been clothed with power from on high, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to believe that He will send His Spirit to bless our efforts. When Jesus said that He would send the Spirit of truth and He would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, you can sit there and say, wouldn't that be wonderful if we could, like the apostles, speak and the Spirit of God would just go and convict hearts? We can, brethren by God's grace, because we have the same spirit of truth, the same helper today, and then believe that he will answer our prayers to that end. When you pray for the Holy Spirit, you should believe exactly what Jesus said, that God the Father is more ready and able and willing to give that spirit to you who ask then then you are to give food to your children. Because that's the context. Believe that and pray and believe. Well, may God help us all to believe these things. Let's pray together in closing. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these encouraging words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this wonderful gift of your Holy Spirit. And we're left saying, Father, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Forgive us for our backwardness to preach your word. Forgive us for our fear, our carnal anxiety. Forgive us for our laziness and our lack of compassion for the lost. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Father, and enable us to do the work to which you have called us. For we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.